So Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, now give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anna Lynn, for reading God's word for us and welcoming us this morning. I'll add my welcome to hers. My name is uh, Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving Christ Community Brookside as an associate pastor. And I want to do really want to welcome any of you who are new here today. We know how hard uh, it is to walk in the door of a church, uh, whether it's for the first time or the first time in a long time. We're so glad you're here. Before we open God's word together, I have a couple more announcements for us. One of them is actually in your note sheet. It's the third one down, and it pertains to student ministries, which is one of my areas of focus here at Brookside. I love getting to work with our 6th through 12th grade students, and there are some really fun things that are happening uh, these days in student ministries. We gather every uh, Wednesday evening from 6.30 to 8.30 here at the church, And this week is extra special. Uh, We're finishing up a teaching series called Identity, and we've designed an evening that's both for students and parents. And so if you're a 6th through 12th grader or the parent of a 6th through 12th grader, you're not going to want to miss out on this week, and uh, you can email me in the next couple days to get the rest of the details and to sign up. We hope you'll make it out to that. My second announcement this morning is really, really fun because I think we were waiting on someone to have a baby, weren't we? Uh, Bill and Rachel Gorman, our campus pastor, and his wife were pregnant, and it is with great joy that I announce to you this morning, Isla Joy. Yeah, Yeah, come on. You see what I did there? It's with great joy that I announce to you, Isla Joy. Susan got it. Yeah, that was great. Uh, Isla Joy Gorman and uh, was born on Friday afternoon. Uh, Baby is healthy. Mom is healthy. Everybody's happy, including Lucy, uh, Bill and Rachel's older daughter, who is just thrilled to be a big sister. So I know many of us were awaiting that news, and I was just happy to share that with you this morning. Would you join me in prayer, thanking God for his faithfulness to the Gormans and also asking him to bless our time in his word? Father in heaven, uh, thank you for the joy and blessing of new life for the Gormans. And I know I speak for all of us when I say how excited we are to meet her and get to to love on her as I know that her family is already doing, Lord. Um, Thank you for that blessing and privilege for Bill and Rachel to be parents again. Uh, And we uh, do pray for them in these uh, new days of of sleepless nights. Uh, We also pray for us here today as we open your word. Uh, As we study Matthew 10, may you speak through me, and uh, may I diminish as you increase. Pray all of these things in your name. Amen. 
Well, one of the very best parts of my college experience was getting to hang out all the time with one of my best friends in the world named John, uh, who also now happens to be my brother-in-law, which is really, really fun. Uh, my wife Ashley and I met at Sterling College in central Kansas, and her younger brother John is my age. He also went to Sterling, and as you can imagine, we all hung out together in one great, fun, big group of friends and had a blast. And like any group of friends worth its salt, we have tons of inside jokes and, and running jokes and stories that go on and on. And one of our favorites was that somehow, some way, we got caught on this discussion about how what we wanted to do was cast the HBO documentary of John's life. And this wasn't just going to be any old HBO documentary because we had to go big or go home. This was going to be, as ridiculous as this sounds, a shot-by-shot -shot recreation of every moment in John's entire life. It's a movie that never ends, right? And one of the reasons why this was so fun for us is that it allowed us the opportunity to have embarrassingly long conversations about casting. Because in a shot-by-shot -shot recreation of someone's life, every person they've ever met or ever will meet needs to be casted. So the question on your minds this morning is, who is I going to be played as in the movie of John's life? Well, wait for it. Gerard Butler, the guy from 300, right? I mean, come on. The resemblance is uncanny. Okay, fine. I'll admit it to you. John insisted that he wanted to cast me as Gerard Butler because of his character in P.S. I Love You, not because of his character in 300. Fine. But, you know what, I'll take that any day, because just between you and I this morning, my biggest fear, I think, is if I ever was to be really cast in a movie, is I'd be played by another Paul. Paul Giamatti, that is. <laughs> Which isn't quite as flattering. Okay. So how about you? Who would play you in the movie of your life? Let's take it one step further. What would the movie of your life even be about? Have you ever thought about that? I think it's a roundabout way of getting at questions that we all wrestle with. Why am I here? What's my purpose? What is my life for? And sure, a movie probably will never be made about our lives, but is your life a story worth telling? Author Donald Miller describes it this way. If you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living these stories and then expect our lives to be meaningful. While it might be hard to hear, the fact is that we're all starring in a movie that no one wants to see. And it's not that we need to just hunker down and try harder and all write a better story, because most of us have tried to do that. Instead of writing a better story, what you and I need to do is we need to join a better story. And really what we need to do here right now is we need to make a little bit of a turn. Because I want to ask you, what if we were to think of our lives not as a movie, not as a movie, but as a mission, 
as a mission. And not a self-centered, choose-your-own-adventure mission, because that's how we end up living our lives, to drive off the lot in a boring car. No, what I'm talking about is something entirely different. What I'm talking about is seeing our lives as being sent. Sent. And not just sent by anyone either, no. Sent by Jesus, the God-man king, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Sent by him. Well then, that changes it a bit, doesn't it? Gives us a new plot, a new purpose. And we so clearly see this in the passage that Anna Lynn read for us just a few minutes ago, don't we? Jesus sends. That's our big idea for this morning. It's what I don't want you to miss. Jesus sends. But the problem is, most of the time, you wouldn't know it by looking at our lives. And believe me, I'm including myself in that critique. We're too busy driving the kids to soccer practice or trying to get ahead at the office. I get distracted by playing church or just catching up on Netflix. Or I lack the intentionality and thoughtfulness needed to be an effective sent one on Jesus' mission. But those excuses fall short. Or at least they should. Because it's not just anyone sending us on a mission. It's a king. It's the king. That's where we've been the last few weeks in the book of Matthew. We've discovered that Jesus is a king. An unlikely king, yes, but a king through and through. And this morning we turn our attention to how we are to respond to this king. What is he calling us to do? Where is he sending us and how might we respond to him? As we turn the corner from Matthew chapter 9 to Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus lament the lack of laborers to work the harvest. The needs of the world are great, Jesus says, but those willing to be sent to meet them are few. And then, in the very next moment, Jesus sends. Matthew 10.1, Jesus sends. As we examine our passage this morning, we're going to see three truths. Number one, Jesus always sends who he calls. Number two, Jesus sends toward opposition. And number three, Jesus leads the way. So first, Jesus always sends who he calls. In the opening verse of chapter 10, Matthew reports that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. And then in the next three or four verses, he follows it up with a list of who these 12 men actually were. And you know what is special or unique about this list? Really not that much at all. <laughs> it's a boring, straightforward, normal list of guys. Simon's nickname is given. Some fathers are lifted to distinguish proper names of disciples who had the same name. Matthew slips in a self-deprecating reminder that he's the dirty tax guy. And Judas is listed last as the future betrayer of Jesus. On the whole, this is, as any list that you've ever seen, an underwhelming list. They're just average people. And the only thing that brings them together is that they said yes to Jesus. When he called, they responded. And we're really not that different, are we? If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's because Jesus called and you responded. It's as simple as that. 
But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me say first how grateful we are that you're with us. We don't take that lightly that you're here. Thank you. But I also want you to hear me say that even right now, in this moment, Jesus is calling you. How will you respond? Verse 5 of our passage shows clearly that those who Jesus calls, he sends, always. The beginning of the verse reads this, these 12, the ones that Jesus had called to him, he sent out. Jesus sends. Now the 12 disciples may have been ordinary guys, just like you and me, but they weren't sent on an ordinary mission. And they weren't sent on an ordinary mission because Jesus is no ordinary sender. Uh, Verse 1 relays to us all the things that the disciples were supposed to do. Cast out demons, heal diseases, raise the dead. You know, ordinary stuff. These ordinary guys were given extraordinary authority. Jesus says to them, go and do what you've seen me do. Go into each town as if you were me. And that, that is what's at the core of what it means to be sent on a mission by Jesus. That we would go and do as he did. Preach the good news of a kingdom where all people are offered the good life. Heal the sick. Bring life out of death. Get close to the untouchable. Work toward freedom for the oppressed. Start right here, right now, and do what I'm doing. Would your life look a little bit different if you took seriously Jesus' call to do those things on a daily basis? I know my life would look different. And we should start doing those things now because there is no waiting for Jesus to send us. It's part and parcel with the call. When you became a Christian, he sent you. And I know it's not sexy, but the truth is that Jesus has sent us right into the middle of our normal, everyday lives. And you may not feel qualified to be a sent one of Jesus, even in your normal life. But that's just the point. You can't do it by your own authority, just like the disciples couldn't do it by their own authority. Jesus made them adequate, and he does the same for you. And you have to hear me say this this morning. Jesus wants you for this mission. He does. Regardless of your age, vocation, gender, personal history, race, or whatever else might come to mind as a potential disqualifier. A few weeks ago, Bill unpacked the story of Matthew the tax collector. Matthew is the very one who is writing down these words for us to read today. He was the dirty tax collector. He calls himself that. He slips in that reminder. Matthew knocks down all of these potential disqualifiers that you want to put up to say, "Ah, maybe Jesus isn't sending me. Yes, he is. He wants you for this mission. And this is what your life is for, not for small things like bovos, but for the deeply meaningful work of inviting people to encounter Jesus, the king who is powerful enough to make dead things come to life again. Doesn't that sound better? So the question for you and me is this. Are you living like you've been sent on a mission? That's what I've been wrestling with this week. Uh, Students, if you're a Christian, Jesus has sent you to your school, to Academy Lafayette or Center or KCPS or Indian Creek or Pembroke or Shawnee Mission East. If you're homeschooled, he sent you to the friends that you have. You're not there on accident, and you're not there for yourself. You're there for the purposes of Jesus who sent you. 
Church, it's not an accident the neighborhood you live in or the office you work at, the friendships you've built, the mom's group, your golf buddies, the soccer team. Do you believe that Jesus has sent you there on mission? So often, I think we fall into the trap of thinking that the only true sent ones are overseas missionaries. And in a very important and real way, of course, they have been sent. Of course. But so have we. So have we. What makes it hard, though, is that we've been sent into our normal lives, and that makes it easy to forget that we're supposed to be on mission. It makes it so much easier to chase after a manicured lawn instead of Jesus' mission for us. You've probably heard the term mission drift applied to organizations. A company begins with a very clear purpose, and it organizes all of its structures and employees around that purpose, and it goes after it full throttle. But over time, the mission, well, it drifts. And presidents and CEOs of companies, they fight mission drift with intensity and vigor. It's the worst thing that can happen to an organization. Have you ever thought about fighting the mission drift in your life? Have you ever considered fighting it with the same intensity and vigor as companies fight it? Because like a raft in the middle of the ocean, we can so easily drift along, carried by the worries, events, dreams, seasons of our lives, and so on, without even noticing that we're miles down the coast, miles from where we want to be, miles from Jesus' mission. So here are a couple quick ways to fight mission drift and live like you've been sent. And these are straight from Jesus' instructions in our passage. First, to fight mission drift, love in both word and deed. Look back with me in our passage at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says this, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Verse 7 is the short version of Jesus' stump speech. The grace-soaked gospel message that the king has come and now everything is different. Proclaim that, Jesus says. Talk about me. Part of the mission includes introducing the people in our circles to Jesus. And for some of us, that means that we need to enlarge our circles because almost everyone we already know is a Christian. I know that's part of my struggle for sure. It really is plain and simple. Part of our mission is telling the good news of Jesus to people right where we are. We can't be silent because the good news of Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. But also, we can't ignore the acts of grace that are necessary on this mission. You may not have the skills to heal the sick, but you can bring them a meal or pray with them. You probably can't raise the dead, you can listen to the worried. You can befriend the lonely. You can speak a kind word, write an encouraging note, do an act of service, be generous, make a genuine friendship. You can do your work well. That's part of this too. Doing your work well, as if God were your boss, honors him and blesses your fellow man. It's part of loving indeed, absolutely. So we're to love in both word and deed, and that helps us fight mission drift. 
Second, to fight mission drift, we should live generously. One thing that's crystal clear in this account, the mission of Jesus hinges on generosity and hospitality. The disciples were instructed to travel lightly and rely on the hospitality of strangers who were open to their message. Don't take payment, don't get bogged down by stuff, just take the essentials and rely on others. Matthew tells us that the disciples were to look for a household that was worthy, basically someone who was hospitable and receptive to them. If they turned out to be unwelcoming, shrug your shoulders and move on. Shake the dust off, Jesus says. No need to worry about them. Their rejection of Jesus' message will be dealt with on Judgment Day. But that's God's business, not yours. The principle for us is this. Our involvement in the mission must involve both a generous giving of our time and talent, engaging the mission ourselves as a sent one, and an eager willingness to support others who are also carrying Jesus' message. Both of those. Are you doing both? Are you fighting mission drift in your life by living generously? And third, be thoughtful. Just like the 12 disciples in this passage, we are sent. But, but yeah, it's going to look different. Of course it is. For one, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus makes it clear that the 12 are supposed to start only with the Jews. And this isn't some kind of discrimination strategy. In fact, just a little bit later in the book of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus' instructions for how they should reach the Gentiles, the non-Jews. What this is in our passage here today is just a good strategy for a bunch of ordinary Jewish guys. He tells them to start where they are and make connections in their neighborhood. So the principle for us is to be thoughtful, strategic. Don't engage the mission willy-nilly. And that's why I've made such a big deal out of where God has already sent you. Your schools, jobs, extended families. Why go out of your way on the mission when there are so many needy people right around you? As you engage Jesus' mission, be thoughtful. Live generously and love others in both word and deed. Now at this point, you might be thinking that living on mission for Jesus sounds really hard. And I'm guessing that you're thinking that because I know I'm definitely thinking that. It doesn't sound easy. And Jesus knows that. He isn't blind to the difficulty of his mission. And Jesus has a plan. And that truth should give us comfort. Because ultimately, Jesus sends us toward opposition. The second truth we hear in our passage today, Jesus sends toward opposition. And yeah, I got that right. He didn't send us away from opposition, but towards it. Towards discomfort, hardship, difficulty, and pain. I know, awesome news, right? Look back with me at the beginning half of verse 16 in our passage. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves. And the rest of that paragraph there goes on to detail how difficult this mission is going to be and how we will face opposition and persecution. How's that for a metaphor, right? Sheep among wolves. Can't you just kind of imagine the disciples in that moment? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wolves eat sheep, right? 
Jesus says, you're going to be detained, questioned, tortured, and then murdered. That list got worse. And of the 12 disciples, Judas the betrayer hung himself, John dies a prisoner, and the remaining 10 are all murdered for their faith in Jesus and the fact that they lived out their mission as a sent one. Like sheep among wolves. In the United States, we live with immense religious freedom. But in many cultures throughout history and still today, Christians were viciously persecuted and are viciously persecuted. We may have freedom, and yes, of course, we should thank God every single day for that. But we can't think for a moment that Jesus hasn't sent us toward opposition. No matter who you are, how much freedom or power you have, the life that Jesus calls us to live always runs against the grain of the world's structures. Always. And Jesus is offensive in every time period, every culture, every nation, every age group, gender, sexual orientation, personality, to every human. Jesus is offensive. For starters, Jesus is offensive because he's all or nothing. He's all or nothing. He demands everything from all of us, and there's just no way around that. That's an offensive message. But it's the type of demand that you get to make when you enter a tomb dead and then walk out on your own strength. Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher. He's a good moral teacher who mocked death. He's the king who rose from the dead. So, so you can't go around and say to Jesus, I, I like your resurrection. I'll take that. I I'd, I'd like to live forever. But I don't like your teachings on sexuality or whatever. I'll leave those there. Thanks. You can't pick and choose like that with Jesus. He's either king of it all or he's king of none of it. Jesus won't be just an app. That was Bill's illustration from a couple weeks ago. I'm still chewing on that. I don't know about you. Jesus isn't just an app that you can download to your phone to use conveniently. Jesus is an entirely new operating system. He causes everything to run differently. Jesus is all or nothing. He wants everything you've got and all of who you are. And that's an offensive message. But maybe even more offensive than that is the claim that Jesus makes where he says, I am the ultimate judge. I have the final say, Jesus claims. That's an offensive message. Because Jesus first looks at you and I and he calls us what we are, sinners. He does. And he reminds us that without him, we're on the highway to hell driving 100 miles per hour. You can't save yourself, Jesus says. You need me. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough. Who isn't offended by that message? Jesus' clear teaching is that we need him to save us or we could ignore him and go to hell. Those are the types of things that Jesus goes around saying. He's not a self-help plan and he can't renovate your life. The only thing he's willing to do is bulldoze your entire life and start over from the ground up. And no one wants to hear that. Jesus is offensive. And we're with him. Or at least we should be. He's our leader, and he has sent us on a mission. So another question for us today is this. Are you willing to get uncomfortable? 
Are you willing to get uncomfortable? Because there's really no way around the discomfort, not if we're going to be faithful. We have to be ready to offend. Here's the second part. We have to be ready to offend as Jesus offended. Now, for any of you that know me even a little bit, you know how uncomfortable I am right now because I really don't like discomfort. You see, I like... No, that's not fair. I love to be liked by other people. (laughs) Love it, love it, love it. It's definitely an idol in my life, and it's kind of a lot of times what I live for instead of God is just getting everyone else to like me. I don't know if any of you have taken StrengthsFinder assessment. Uh, I did, and my number one strength was woo, stands for winning others over. That's right. My top strength is to get you all to like me. And what am I supposed to do again if I'm really on Jesus' mission? Okay, I'm supposed to unfend. I'm supposed to get uncomfortable. Hmm. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I'll leave that right there. I had that realization this week as I was studying this passage and writing this message. How uncomfortable I am with getting uncomfortable. How hard I work to never offend anyone, even if it's as what Jesus would have done. And having that realization and being convicted very deeply about that and knowing that I had to stand up here in front of you this morning and talk about it, it was hard. But the realization forced me to ask myself this question. If I'm not willing to get uncomfortable as Jesus would have gotten uncomfortable, then am I really on his mission? Because if I'm not willing to press into the discomfort, if that's what Jesus would have done, then I'm not really following Jesus, at least not fully. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, care for the vulnerable, to let his values be our values. Jesus says that our lives should look different. Generosity, humility, sacrifice, speaking in truth when it's appropriate. We don't retreat in fear, but we stand with the oppressed. We serve, we love, and we give ourselves away. And we're called to do all of these things so radically, so radically that even our own families might reject us. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Jesus says, hey, the same thing might happen to you. He talks about that in verse 21 of our passage. And we worship family, don't we? Would you follow Jesus if it meant your children would laugh at you or refuse to visit you? If your brother despised you or your parents disowned you? Some of you here today have lived that. You've lived what Jesus promised here in Matthew 10. You've lost brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and children They've rejected you, they've turned away from you, all because of Jesus. Some of you have come from cultures where you've lost everything because of your decision to follow Jesus. You've offended as Jesus offended, and it was costly. You look at the words of this passage, what Jesus says, and they resonate deeply with you. For others of us, it's a bit easier to slip by without outing ourselves as followers of Jesus. But that shouldn't be our default setting. If we're not willing to get uncomfortable, then we have to take a hard look at whether or not we're actually engaging Jesus' mission or it's just maybe a false counterfeit. If we're willing, if we are willing, if we are willing to take seriously Jesus' call 
and the fact that he sends us toward opposition, then what we can take solace in, it doesn't fix everything, but what we can take solace in is that Jesus has left for us a picture of what to do when we're in the face of that opposition. And, and yes, it's a confusing picture. It's these two seemingly opposing metaphors at the end of verse 16. Beginning of verse 16 again says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, great, Jesus, so what do we do about that? So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Okay, thank you very much. That helps, great, appreciate it. But here's what Jesus is getting at here, and there's a tension that we shouldn't try to resolve too quickly. He says, be like a snake, wise and wary, shrewd, prudent, hard to pin down. Use discernment. Don't go looking for trouble. There's enough of that out there already. Be like a snake, difficult to catch. Now, some of us are so smooth about sharing our faith that people actually don't know that that's what we're trying to do. Some of us are really good at being a snake, relevant, always trying to fit in, not stirring the pot, maybe not speaking up when we should. So then the opposite metaphor, be like a dove, innocent and gentle, easy to catch even, patient and kind. But if we take that too far, then we might end up ignorant or naive, forgetting that we might be devoured in a moment. We may become silly and irrelevant, or we may be nice, too nice. So then be like a snake, difficult to catch, but then also innocent like a dove. Again, Jesus is a master at drawing out these tensions, and we do ourselves wrong when we try to resolve them perfectly. We have to live into it. I heard a story this last week about Christians who lived in a country very opposed to the gospel. And they were meeting in secret, and the authorities found them, busting in, demanding IDs. And you know what? These Christians gladly handed them over. They counted it a privilege to be associated with Jesus. They didn't fake their IDs. They were meeting in secret, like a good snake would, and when they were caught, innocent as a dove, they handed over the ideas, almost happy to be caught for Jesus and the mission that he had sent them on. Do you see the tension? It's subtle, but it's there, and it's always going to be uncomfortable. So this week, as you enter the places God has sent you, what would it look like for you to be both snake-like and dove-like? Most of us are either one or the other. We're either really good at avoiding opposition, or we're really good at attracting it. But if we're living into this tension, then we are going to offend people, and that will be hard. And when that happens, when we do offend people, we have to make sure it's for the right reasons. If people don't like you, make sure it's because you've offended them as Jesus would have, and not just because you're a jerk. We don't need to turn people off to him with our anger, or our us versus them language, or our social media posts. Be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And if you live into this tension and are willing to get uncomfortable, then it might even cost you your life. It has for an uncountable amount of Christians throughout history. And it might, today, Christians will lose their lives for the gospel around the globe. So how could we stand here and say that that might not even be true of us someday? There's no way around me, right? Let's just sit in that for a moment. There is no way around the difficulty of that mission when one day it might call us to give up everything, including our lives in these bodies. That's a hard mission. But take hope. 
Because the final truth that we see this morning about Jesus' mission is this. On this mission, Jesus leads the way. Jesus leads the way. The final two verses of our passage, 24 and 25, read this. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says, if they have rejected me, then they will certainly reject you. A servant is not above his master. But Jesus is the only master I'm aware of who made himself lower than his own servants to die alone on a cross. It's not something a master typically does. So what does that mean for us? Why can we take hope in that? Well, it means that there is nowhere Jesus has sent you where he has not already been and where he is not already at work. It means that there is no pain that he hasn't felt It means that there is no loss he hasn't endured. There is no shame he can't understand. There are no chains he cannot break. There is no sin he cannot forgive. There is no life he cannot use. That is his promise to you. And that's what that means. That Jesus leads the way. He leads the way and then he sends all of us on an extraordinary and yes, difficult mission. And yes, you will offend people on this mission and it's going to be hard and it might even cost you your life. But Jesus said to his disciples and he says to you this morning, don't give in, don't give up. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sends. Will you go? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so grateful that you sent Jesus to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserved, and to defeat death three days later so we may experience the newness and fullness of life born again, an eternal life that begins here and now. And part of that eternal life means being sent on this incredible mission. Thank you that we don't go that alone, that Jesus leads the way, and thank you that your Holy Spirit lives in each one of us so that we can be empowered to do this mission well. Help us to do that well, Lord, for your honor and glory. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.